you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. Yesterday, the president of LA's Teachers Union told us that a full five-day-a-week on-campus reopening of LAUSD schools is still under negotiation. So today, we're going to hear from the president of the LA Board of Education to hear her vision of what the fall schedule could look like. Plus, how LA's car culture created LA's car architecture. It's all ahead on Take Two. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez coming up after hearing from the president of LA's Teachers Union yesterday about uh, what the upcoming school year will be like. Today, we're going to hear from the school board president. My conversation with Kelly Gomez is just ahead. But first, to your questions and ours about the coronavirus vaccines and the grand reopening of the state on June 15th. And here to discuss it, we have Dr. Robert Kim Farley, an epidemiologist at UCLA's Fielding School. School of Public Health. Doctor, welcome back. Thanks. Hey, it's good to be back on the program. All right. Now, uh, COVID-19 vaccinations are underway for kids uh, ages uh, 12 to 15. But while some families are very eager to have their children get uh, a dose, others remain hesitant. Doctor, what's your sense of what's happening in L.A. County? Well, I'm encouraged. I think uh, we're already at like uh, 35% in L.A. County of 16 to 17 year olds have received one dose. So that bodes well. Um, I think that there are many students who are eager to have the vaccine because of the fact that it's gonna allow them and their parents to feel much more comfortable for them to go outside, see friends, go to movies, et cetera. Although I realize there are still some who may be vaccine hesitant, but uh, um, I'm hopeful that they'll recognize that, uh, you know, 24% of the cases that are coming up new these days are in children. Beyond being vaccine hesitant, according to a recent uh, L.A. Times article, doctor, some teams think that uh, they don't need to be vaccinated against the coronavirus. Uh, What's your advice to them? Well, I think to be realistic, uh, you know, there was a study in Italy that showed uh, over 50 percent of uh, six to 16 year olds who had COVID had uh, one of these long haul symptoms for more than four months. And in the U.K., something like 15 percent of uh, teenagers suffered from long COVID uh, symptoms to enough to impair their daily activities. So it's, it's not a free pass being young. 
not a free pass when when we're two old guys like us talking doctor <laughs> but when we hear that not a free pass being young that's not a free pass being old either uh, i just lumped you into being old too i can't I have no that's idea not the how e ticket right yeah, yeah. <laughs> no not that's that's another thing you and i understand uh for uh, the younger teens remind us what the dosage is is it the same as adults yes actually for the vaccine that is uh, currently um, authorized for use in children, the Pfizer vaccine, it is the same dosage and the same schedule. Okay. Uh, however, lower doses are being examined as they look at those under 12 years of age to get the ideal uh, dosage and regimen for them as well. And doctor, what is exactly is the latest in how the vaccine trials are going for kids uh, even younger than 12? Yes. So uh, Pfizer is now in their phase one trials, which is, you know, their first initial phase of it for those under five years of age. Um, and that's ongoing. And uh, they expect also to be applying in September for this emergency use authorization, like it's currently used for adults, um, for those who are aged two to 11. So, wow. you know, good things coming down the pike, so to speak. Now, a new study in the journal Nature found that waiting longer than three weeks between COVID-19 uh, boosts immunity. It's uh, only one study, but what's the takeaway here? Yes, you know, in a sense, it, there was a natural study that occurred in the, because of the fact that the UK had such limited supply of vaccine, chose a route to give more people one dose of vaccine as compared to giving fewer people both doses um, because they wanted to prioritize getting, you know, maximum number into the pipeline and starting to get some protection. Uh, but it did show that there was like a threefold increase uh, in antibody response uh, for those who went out to 11 to 12 weeks of um, after their first dose compared to those that were at the standard four weeks, especially for those who are you know, elderly, more than 80. It's not really sure if that has much clinical significance mm -hmm. uh, in terms of actually protection or not. Um, I would think that that might have some takeaway for other countries that have limited supply, especially in developing countries, to maybe consider the possibility of a first dose followed by a later um, second dose, if you uh, want to try to maximize the number of people getting at least some protection from that first dose. Probably not here in the U.S. where okay. we now have sufficient vaccine. You know, and, and we're still learning a lot, aren't we, doctor, about all mm. of this. Is there ever going to come to a point where we at least think we have a handle on the science behind all this? Well, I think the science uh, still could throw us some uh, loops in the sense that uh, variants, I think, is the real wild card here. Uh, you know, if there's a variant that breaks through our vaccine, fortunately, that has not happened yet. But I'm also optimistic that should it happen, that the manufacturers are ready to go with tweaking the vaccine to cover that. So uh, I think that's all good as well. You know, there have been some reports of breakthrough cases. Those are uh, people who still test positive for the coronavirus despite being vaccinated. I know the New York Yankees reported uh, cases of uh, breakthrough cases. How common is that, doctor? And should it give people any reason for concern? Well, it is rare, so um, it's not really going to be a public health problem in the concern that, you know, we'd have major amounts of virus circulation, even in the face of very high levels of immunization coverage. And fortunately, uh, for those who have had this rare phenomenon, uh, the disease has been either asymptomatic, no symptoms, yeah. or very mild. Um, a Stanford study showed uh, that um, only 189 people who had been vaccinated, even partially, out of 22,000 uh, 700 uh, healthcare workers, uh, that's you know 0.8%, was able to show that there had been some infection, but many of those were just partially vaccinated. So again, not a public health problem and not something of major concern. So having the vaccine though in those cases actually helped then? 
Exactly. And they probably really diminish the ability to transmit the disease from another person. We're talking to Dr. Robert Kim Farley, an epidemiologist at UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Now, a poll released this week found that 63% of Californians are okay with the idea of venues uh, such as stadiums and concert halls uh, requiring some sort of proof of vaccine or a negative test for entry. But there's a a whole lot of pushback on that idea, too. Uh, First, uh, doctor, uh, is this being practiced in any real way in California? Well, I think we're beginning to see some possibilities for it. Uh, We won't see, looks like in the near future, at least any federal uh, requirements, nor any statewide California requirements. But there still has been effectively an encouragement in California since there are variations as to, for example, how many people can be brought into a venue uh, if you have all of them vaccinated versus being a mix of vaccinated people. Um, And there have been some success stories in other places. Uh, You've got New York... uh, city doing their Excelsior Pass. You've got airlines starting to use these, uh, uh, American Airlines, uh, the very fly. They're calling them vaccine passports, but probably a better term is really, you know, health credentials uh, Mm -hmm. because they're not really a government issued uh, piece of paper. Yeah. I got, I got a flight coming up, uh, in, in a few weeks, doctor, I'm, I'll be interested to know what I have to do <laughs> to get on that flight. Actually, when I come back from the place that I'm coming from, so that that'll be, uh, I'll, I'll report back to you, a uh, doctor on how Thank that's you. all handled. Yeah. Now, uh, I can see the upside though, for those who are vaccinated, but there are drawbacks too. What are the main concerns with all this? I think the main concern is to make sure again, that those people, um, who haven't been vaccinated, have had uh, equal access to getting the vaccine. So I think that that's not correct to be able to restrict people if uh, you know people haven't had a chance to get them. But I think that's becoming less and less a problem as we try to reach out to all sectors here in uh, LA and in, in California. I think also there's you know the issue that unvaccinated people don't want to be barred from places. And uh, frankly, we also have had the politicization of this whole issue, um, whether it's being masks or vaccination or now uh, you know vaccine. Uh, health credentials. Yeah, I've heard people being worried that they won't be allowed to buy food or, or go into mm. a store to get groceries. Uh, all those concerns have been expressed. Uh, now, something like this wouldn't really work if it were a patchwork with maybe some businesses requiring it and others not. So what would need to happen, doctor, to coordinate an effort uh, like this across the country or maybe across the state? And is that even doable, really? Well, I think it's doable in the sense that if uh, we had the political will and also the public support, both have to be there really to actually implement it. Um, But at present, I think that we really are seeing this patchwork. And I think in the near future, that will continue. However, again, because of these favorable recommendations from the state for venues that do require proof of vaccination, I think that uh, we will see more and more private venues uh, and we've seen it now when the cruise industry is soon to be coming up, uh, you know, we require vaccination, things like this. So we'll see it in these uh, particular areas that will be uh, implemented. Do you think that if the rate of infection, say, in the United States got so low, got so low that this idea would be abandoned? Could you see that as a possibility if it got to the point where, you know, it doesn't even feel like a threat? Certainly. I think, uh, you know, as epidemiologists, we always look at the circulation of uh, disease in the community to base our recommendations on. And so if you've received very high levels of immunization coverage and disease rates have fallen to very, very low levels, you can, again, modify the uh, requirements. But again, you've got to always then be vigilant 
to keep a monitoring on this. So if uh, the vaccine guard, so to speak, starts to drop and mm. cases start to increase, we might have to go back and implement some of the more severe restrictions. Now, speaking of passports, uh, the European Union said this week it's opening up its borders to vaccinated people. And I think a lot of people are planning uh, some significant travel this summer. Uh, so even for the fully vaccinated doctor, what should people keep in mind? Well, I think you might still want to think twice about going to a place that um, is right in the midst of a major COVID outbreak. I don't think that would be the wisest thing to do. Um, I think also what your own uh, medical situation is, are you more pre-existing conditions and things like this? So even if you were vaccinated, if you had one of these breakthrough situations, you might be in more difficulty. And you might think, especially if you're in that type of a setting for yourself to go to a place where you could receive hospitalization and could receive appropriate care if you needed it. Doctor, I wish you could talk to my son-in-law. He's going to a bachelor party in a country that's having a tough time right now. It it, uh, it terrifies me and it angers me that he's doing this. But, uh, you know, I, I think people are at a point where they just want to live their lives and, and do the stuff that they would have done before. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point that, you know, ultimately everyone lives on a spectrum of what to them is risks versus benefits. Now, you and I might not go, or maybe you do go, uh, you know, cliff climbing uh, off of uh, in Yosemite, <laughs> but you know, others uh, think that's great and they realize there's a risk, but that's what they want to do. And so same thing, I think even in visiting a COVID infected country and wanting to go uh, do medical tourism and visit the COVID ward in the country. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it, people do different things. Yeah. Right now uh, for Angelinos returning from another country, is, is a quarantine required? And if so, is it expected uh, that that's going to remain the case uh, for the rest of the summer? Well, currently, but I think it will change over the summer. Uh, we are requested to postpone non-essential travel until we're fully vaccinated. Um, currently, actually, all air passengers to the United States are required to have a negative COVID test or documentation of recovery before they board a flight to the U.S. So that's one thing. And then uh, someone traveling to California who's not fully vaccinated uh, uh, still should be tested before and after travel and self-quarantine for seven days if the COVID test is negative. And if uh, not tested, self-quarantine for 10 days. My daughter is not going with my son-in-law, by the way, on this trip. <laughs> so, I mean, he's not my kid, so I can't say anything to him. But I wish his dad would say something to him. That's another uh, conversation. Now, last week, L.A. County Department of Public Health said we could reach uh, community immunity. See, I didn't use the, the common word, doctor, herd immunity, uh, by this summer. Uh, and this is after some big headlines a couple of uh, uh, weeks ago that the U.S. would never reach it. Now, this I beg some clarification here, I think. So remind us what community immunity means. Yeah, well, I say you heard uh, the herd immunity to community immunity, right? So yes. that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, really, um, I think it has to go back to the definition that we're using, which I think has muddled the water somewhat. Yeah. Some uh, people have used the idea of uh, community immunity is the point at which there is no circulation because everyone is immune and therefore the virus just dies out and goes to zero and you've eradicated. I don't think we're gonna to get to that point, um, certainly anytime in the near future. But I think the other term that's often used for community immunity is the idea that you have so many people immune uh, that you have a market reduction in cases. The risks become much, much lower to people in the society. You can open up uh, the activities that people can do. And I think that is something that we can be approaching and certainly you know, getting up there is 80 percent ish or so for vaccine coverage uh, will do that. So is that what uh, County Direct Health Director Barbara Ferrer is talking about? 
yes, when she talks about, uh, you know, uh, the numbers of people being vaccinated um, and the numbers of, of adults. But of course, you've got to realize that, you know, those uh, under 16 are still a significant portion of the population. We've really got to get that 80 percent for the entire population to reach that even that one of markedly reduced um, disease due to community immunity that's received, but not only from vaccinating, I should mention, but also someone may have uh, come down with COVID and is now naturally immune because they've got antibody because of that uh, infection. I wonder if by 2022, doctor, I wonder if we're, if we're still having some of these conversations at the end of this year, by the start of 2022. I mean, I, I know it's impossible to predict any of this, doctor, but I mean, what do you think? What do you think this year holds uh, until we get to the new one? Yeah, I think this year for us here in the United States is uh, we, we certainly now have turned the corner. We've got that light uh, really right here. <laughs> We're coming out of the tunnel almost with it. Once we get all the kids uh, being able to get vaccinated as well, we definitely, I think by you know school year start toward the end of this year, uh, certainly uh, you know we will be there where people feel very comfortable. However, uh, that's not going to be the situation in a lot of the rest of the world, especially in developing countries yeah. that are still you know, struggling to get vaccines. So I think in terms of international travel, the constant importation of disease, that's all still going to be with us uh, for a while. That's Dr. Robert Kim Farley of UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, as always, thank you very much. Hey, a pleasure. All right, speaking of the fall schedule of schools, yesterday we heard from UTLA President Cecily Meyer Cruz. She reps the teachers' union, and she told us that a full five-day-a-week on-campus reopening of LAUSD schools is still under negotiation. So today, we're going to hear from the president of the LA School Board, Kelly Gomez, to hear her vision of what the fall schedule could look like. She's coming up next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. I'm LA's senior education reporter, Mariana Dale. The communities that are more marginalized or that do not have access are the ones that are in most need. I help families understand, navigate, and engage with the forces that shape education from kindergarten through high school. How do I explain to my daughter that the same day you got to celebrate a birthday, you got to celebrate the day your mama left. And I make space for students to tell their own stories. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Stand up. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, Ami Martinez. Now we turn to more discussion about the L.A. Unified School District's plans for the next school year. 
Yesterday, we spoke to United Teachers LA President Cecily Maillard Cruz on whether the union supports a complete return to the classroom next fall. She said that while this is the goal, a lot of discussion is still needed on safety regulations and class sizes to make it happen. After that conversation, we heard from several parents who are frustrated by the lack of clarity in what those regulations might be and on what August will look like for their kids. I am shocked at what she is saying about reopening in August, social distancing, etc., beyond CDC and local Los Angeles requirements. This is totally against the governor's mandate for schools to receive funding in August. You know, most of the population is vaccinated. Kids are doing very well. Data around the world has shown that schools that have been open have much, much lower transmission than the community at large. And um, propagating this fear-induced narrative that schools have to be closed or they have to be half open or all the, you know, nonsense is really, really unacceptable. As a working parent, I cannot do another year of distance learning and my kid is suffering and we need schools to reopen and I wish that the district and the union would start to put kids first in some of their planning. I mean, after all, schools exist for, for students, not for teachers unions or board members or personal agenda. There's no reason why LAUSD cannot reopen just like private schools and other public districts um, throughout Los Angeles and California. You know, our kids have suffered enough over 400 days of no school, um, being forced to be online because of UTLA and, you know, their demands. It's not fair. It's unjust. So fall needs to be full time no matter what. And for parents, UTLA is the only thing that's standing in our way for our kids to have a good public school education. Those are listeners Joel Delman, Sarah from West L.A., Christy Pasica, Olga Tierney, and one parent who did not leave her name. Now, to hopefully get a few more answers about uh, the next school year, we talk now with Kelly Gonez, president of LAUSD's Board of Education, the governing body representing over 600,000 students and their caregivers. Kelly Gonez, welcome back to the show. Thanks, A. It's great to be here. All right. It's a month into uh, schools reopening. How, in your opinion, is it going so far? Uh, Well, I I think it's been going really well, all things considered. Um, We're so glad to have our students back on campus. And I visited dozens of schools in my district since they've reopened. And there's just a lot of joy um, being felt on our campuses. We also know that many families have opted to remain in distance learning, and there's a number of reasons for that. You know, they might have unique circumstances at home that make the student or a member of the family more vulnerable, or maybe they've been significantly impacted already by COVID-19. So that concern is understandable. That's why we've continued to provide that robust distance learning option um, this spring and um, are, of course, working towards building that trust among our families that in-person school is safe, that our safety measures are working. So we're committed to continuing to do that direct, authentic outreach with families to make sure they're informed and that their concerns are addressed as we look to next school year. Now, the end of this school year is almost here. And the big thing on people's minds is, of course, next year and whether students will completely return to school in August, meaning five days a week on campus. What is the school board's position on this? So we know that in the COVID-19 pandemic, things can change and rapidly, but we've really seen a remarkable turnaround in Los Angeles since the beginning of this year. 
with LA County in the yellow tier and students now as young as 12 eligible for the vaccine. We're really optimistic about the fall. Um, so I'll just reiterate what the superintendent um, has been saying that the district is planning for full-time five-day-a-week in-person instruction in the fall. There uh, will likely still need to be some social distancing requirements and other safety protocols, but it will be structured much more like quote, normal school than the hybrid model that we currently have. Um, and we will also separately continue to offer an online option because we know that some families who are particularly vulnerable to COVID for whatever reason will still uh, want and need that distance learning option. You say you're optimistic um, to the point where you might insist on that being the case? I think that the superintendent has said that we will have full-time five-day-a-week in-person instruction in the fall. And um, I I think that that speaks for itself. The details, of course, need to be worked out, um, and we're doing so right now with our labor partners. We all want to make sure that in-person schooling remains safe as it has been this spring, um, but we will have that five-day-a-week in-person instruction in the fall. Now, Governor Gavin Newsom said last week that schools must open and put additional funding on the table for those schools that do. The state's uh, largest teachers union also says it's open to the idea. So it seems like, as you know, we've been talking about full-time, in-person instruction is going to be more or less required in the fall. Why then is uh, all of this not yet a done deal for LAUSD? Well, I think the, the details matter, right? We have to make sure um, that we work out all of the safety protocols according to the latest guidance from uh, the state and federal governments and our county health authorities. So we're taking all of that into account. And um, and then, of course, we need to reach out to our families and make sure that they understand what the plans are to be for the fall. Um, so I, I expect that we will have something that we can announce on this definitively in the next couple of weeks. Um, to make sure that families know what the plans will be for the fall before the end of this school year. As you heard, a few upset parents uh, gave us a call, left us a message about this lack of certainty, and and one pointed to UTLA as as the holdup in the district announcing a complete return in the fall. Is that the case? Is UTLA the reason why we don't have clarity on this? We're working with all of our labor partners on the planning for the fall. And as I said, I expect that we'll have that resolved in the next couple of weeks. You know, there are always details to be worked out. Again, we, we continue to be in unprecedented circumstances. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that there are many points of difference between us and our labor partners because we all have the shared goal of making sure that our students can be in a learning environment that meets their needs while maintaining safety for them, their families, and our staff. So not many points of difference. What is the biggest point of difference? What's the one thing that seems to be the one that's holding things up? Yeah, since since this is all subject to ongoing labor negotiations, um, I, I have to respect that process. Um, but like I said, uh, the, the points of difference are minor, and I expect that we'll have a formal announcement for our families in the next couple of weeks and no later by then by the end of the school year. So just to be clear, does UTLA have to vote on any agreement to reopen before full-time school can be official? Um, you know, we have to have our collective bargaining agreements in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, we do have to hear and, and work to agreement with our labor partners, including UTLA, but also um, our other labor partners as well. Yesterday, when we spoke with Cecily Meyer-Cruz, uh, she said, uh, and I can paraphrase, that the union wants a school full time, but it will not be a return to normal. Uh, she put smaller class sizes on the table as a possible bargaining chip. Uh, what are your thoughts on how able the district is to even offer something like that? Yeah, I mean, I and and I I did hear a little bit of the interview, and I might I might push back on on the use of the term bargaining chip. I mean, I think I think the point in that while it may be structured as normal 
it may not feel normal for families who've gone through a traumatic experience. And so it's about how do we ensure that the services and supports are in place um, to help address those communities. And there are many in LA Unified who have been just disproportionately devastated by COVID. And I think, you know, we have a unique opportunity with the additional investment we've seen from the federal and state governments um, to respond to our student needs. So we are absolutely thinking about uh, investing in key personnel, like more mental health counselors and reading teachers and special education supports um, and custodians who will help us address safety and promoting social emotional wellness and student learning next year. Um, we are also talking about things like class size reduction, um, extended time after school, more tutoring. Um, so I think that all of those things are absolutely on the table because we all want to make sure that it's not just about our doors being open in, in the fall. We're committed to that, but it's also about making sure that when students return to us, that they have the holistic supports that they need to recover from the pandemic socio-emotionally and academically. We're talking to Kelly Gomez, president of the LAUSD Board of Education. On the uh, topic of safety, uh, we also discussed masks and cleaning as possible conditions before return in the fall uh, can be agreed upon. Uh, and, and she was also very noncommittal about the CDC guidance allowing students to distance at three feet apart instead of six. So based on the, the partial reopening that has been going on and on scientific guidance from the CDC, what safety regulations and, and other considerations does the board think need to be put in place for a complete reopen to happen. So I think, you know, we're we're interested in following um, the latest guidance just on the, the issue of masking. We know that the CDC's most recent guidance only applies to those who are vaccinated. And, you know, you know there isn't yet an approved vaccine for younger children. Um, so on the masking issue, I expect that masking is likely going to be required. But if conditions improve dramatically with regard to the pandemic, maybe it's not necessary for the full school year or even the full far, full fall term. You know, it's it's hard to say 100% given that there are developing factors that are outside of our school's control, especially with regard to access to the vaccine um, for our students who are currently eligible and when an approved vaccine will become available for younger children. Now on the issue of mental health, because there are a lot of communities uh, all over LAUSD that have been hit a little bit harder than others. Um, what kind of things can be ready for the fall, uh, considering that uh, you know there's not a lot of time to, to get this uh, set up for August? I'm wondering what kind of things can be doable for the fall for kids that are dealing with this? Absolutely. So the, the board and I, we have already been having regular public conversations about the path to recovery and how to leverage the support we're receiving from the federal state governments to support accelerated learning and ensure students' mental and emotional well-being. And some initial pieces have already been decided because, as you said, A, we have to get these pieces in place uh, for our summer school program, which will be robust and expanded, um, but also for the fall. Um, so we are actually talking next week, we'll be voting on hiring many more mental health counselors um, such that every school will have access to mental health support on campus to really address um, the trauma that many of our students have gone through and make sure that our students are taken care of um, socio-emotionally and with regard to their mental health. So we're already working on putting those pieces in place. That's why we've started these conversations already and are taking action as soon as next week um, to make sure we can get those key personnel on campus. So on that issue of social socio-emotional health for students, that was also echoed in a recent conversation that I had with UCLA education professor Tyrone Howard. 
We cannot underestimate the power of this moment and what is meant for students' mental health and well-being. There's a big focus being placed on learning loss and how we make up learning loss. I've been saying we need to put Maslow before Bloom. We have to make sure students have their most basic needs met, food, safety, shelter, uh, sense of belonging. If that's not in place, then we're going to struggle to make up learning loss gaps. One of the things I've heard from parents that they're worried that something like this that could be useful for many years beyond what we're dealing with now in the pandemic, that there won't be the money or maybe the focus on having this be a permanent thing. What are your thoughts on making this something that uh, is something that can be done years down the road as opposed to just a reaction to what we've been, just been through? Well, Dr. Howard is very, very wise, and I agree with um, everything that he shared. Um, I think on the one hand, it is about ensuring that our students' socio-emotional wellness remains a priority. And actually the board had a conversation just a couple of days ago about elevating socio-emotional wellness to the same level as our academic goals in terms of what is our focus as a district for the next three to five years. So I think that's one piece of a commitment to make sure that it, this isn't just a response to this pandemic, but it is an ongoing commitment um, to the whole child and meeting their, their wellness mentally as well as academically. Um, the other piece I think that's really important is, uh, is about the system sustainability of the resources we're receiving. Um, the dollars that we are receiving as, as a result of COVID um, are essential to recovering, but for our public schools to be truly successful, it has to be more than one-time money. Uh, the reality is that our schools were chronically underfunded prior to the pandemic. In March 2020, there were basic things that we weren't able to provide for students which were necessary to their success. So along those lines, I just want to emphasize that we can't just go back to March 2020 levels and it can't just be during this emergency that we're providing schools with the resources that they need. So hopefully, in addition to a prioritization of socio-emotional wellness, um, I hope that for our state and our federal government, this is a sign of shifting towards fully funding our public schools in perpetuity. One last thing. Um, I know you mentioned how everything's still on the table. There's negotiations ongoing. So there are things that you can't get very specific on, but are we at a point in the pandemic uh, with what we now know about the science combined with the continuing decline in the spread of infection in LA County that the school board maybe needs to draw a line on UTLA's hesitance? Maybe you can say more about your question. <laughs> well, if they're going to bring up certain things that uh, the science says they shouldn't be hesitant about, is, is, is the school board going to say, hey, okay, enough with this? I think that, you know, I think that the spring semester has shown that um, while there was a lot of hesitancy about the ability to safely reopen schools, we've been able to do that. We've been able to reopen our schools safely um, and successfully with all of the measures in place. And so I think we have a good sense of what works from firsthand experience now. And I think that there is evolving guidance um, from our county and state and federal authorities, which we're looking to leverage. So um, I think we have a we have a greater sense of clarity about what it will take to ensure that our schools remain safe. And um, we will definitely adhere to that when it comes to what the fall will look like. That's Kelly Gonez, president of the L.A. USD Board of Education. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. More Take Two coming right up. Stay with us.
it's on trend for a world rapidly warming due to climate change. I'm LA's senior science reporter Jacob Margolis, and I help Southern Californians understand the science of our imperfect paradise. It is not unprecedented at all for fires in the western U.S. to affect cities on the eastern seaboard. So that we can better protect our environment and prepare for natural disasters as the climate continues to change. There's a giant mass of warm water stretching from Alaska down to California. independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Ian Martinez. Yesterday, we brought you the story of David Ordaz Jr., a man killed by L.A. Sheriff's deputies while he was experiencing a mental health crisis. Today, we explore the debate over how law enforcement should respond to those type of calls or whether it should be involved at all. Part of that debate is about the sheriff's mental evaluation teams, or MET. They're made up of a deputy and a mental health clinician who are specially trained to peacefully resolve psychiatric crises. KPCC's Robert Garova spent some time with the unit, and he has this report. In March, 34-year-old David Ordaz Jr. was killed by sheriff's deputies in front of his parents' home in East L.A. His family had called for help. Ordaz had a knife, and they were worried he might take his own life. One of the sheriff's department's mental evaluation teams, or MET, had been dispatched. But before it could arrive, Ordaz had been shot and killed. At MET's dispatch center in South El Monte, Deputy Umberto Barragan sits under a large screen that displays the location of MET units across the county, from the Antelope Valley to South LA. It's his job to coordinate where to send out the department's 33 teams. Every team is crisis negotiation trained. We have a different skill set than most patrol deputies. So we get on the scene and we try to slow things down. Lieutenant John Gannon headed up the MET units for about five years. On the day I visit him, it's his last day. He's being promoted to captain. Gannon says you have to go through a lot of training to be on a MET unit. It's about 732 hours of total curriculum in the first year of formalized training. That's about four months of training far more than the average patrol deputy gets. I rode along recently with Met Deputy Joe Miranda. On this day, he's flying solo, backing up other Met units. The first call is at an apartment in Baldwin Park. We roll up in our unmarked SUV. That's another way Met tries to lower the temperature. Deputies are evicting a 21-year-old man. He lives with his mother, who wants him out of the house because of drug use. They just came to evict this gentleman who's been kind of saying some things. Yeah. which became concerning to the deputies that are here. Miranda, another deputy, and a mental health clinician are able to talk the young man out of his home and eventually onto a gurney. He's headed to a local hospital. Miranda believes he may be high on methamphetamines. Back in the car, Miranda tells me this job isn't for everybody. Because it does take a different level of patience. Uh, it's a different level of compassion. You're going to deal with some individuals that may not be making any sense. And it's not for us to make sense of it, but it's to validate, to help 
uh, get this person the help they need. Just a few minutes later, Miranda gets another call. About 15 miles away in Altadena, a man displaying signs of mental illness has set fire to a building. By the time we arrive, a MET team has already de-escalated the situation. And the guy was very aggressive towards them and challenging. The MET deputy showed up, was able to talk the guy into handcuffs to the backseat of a patrol car with no incident. The sheriff's department says up to 34 lives were saved last year, partly thanks to MET. Back at headquarters, Gannon explains that ideally, all patrol deputies would have at least some recent training from MET on how to respond to mental health crises. But not all deputies are up to date. Gannon says that was evident when David Ordaz's family called for help in March. My understanding is of the seven personnel on scene, two of them had recently been to one of our trainings. Uh, so some had been training, maybe some were waiting to still go to training. Gannon says the department needs a lot more MET units. MET was able to respond to fewer than half of the more than 17,000 crisis calls that came in last year. He would like to see MET's numbers nearly doubled, from the current 33 teams to 60. There is some support on the Civilian Oversight Commission for an increase, but Commissioner Priscilla O'Chen thinks beefing up MET is not the right way forward. If we don't want to continue to see these outcomes where police are using lethal force against people who are calling for help, then we have to get the police out of the equation. Period. O'Chen believes the county should instead put more resources into unarmed responses, like the Department of Mental Health's psychiatric mobile response teams. Those teams respond to certain nonviolent mental health calls without law enforcement. There are about 60 for the whole county. Eunices Hernandez is co-founder of the criminal justice reform group La Defensa. She agrees with Ochen. We've done so much labor to create the other responses, and now is just time where the county needs to commit the dollars. Hernandez says she recently called one of the mobile response teams to help a woman experiencing a crisis near her house. She waited with the woman for more than two hours before the team arrived. For his part, Deputy Miranda believes a completely unarmed response is a, quote, noble idea. But he still sees a need for law enforcement if someone has a weapon or is acting violently. I see it as a high risk to send someone who is not trained or doesn't have the tools to defend themselves to send them to a, an incident call. And all these calls are unpredictable. The recent shooting of 25-year-old Isaias Cervantes by a sheriff's deputy has highlighted calls to remove law enforcement from mental health crises. Justice for who? Family and disability rights activists recently rallied in front of the Hall of Justice. Just two weeks after the fatal Ordaz shooting, Cervantes was critically injured when a deputy shot him. Cervantes has autism. One of his sisters had called 911 for help after he began acting out in the family's Cudahy home. A MET unit did not respond to the scene. Judy Mark, president of Disability Voices United, spoke at the rally. I have personally worked with police departments around Los Angeles to train thousands of police officers on how to recognize autism. And guess what? It didn't work. It didn't work. Mark hopes the state legislature passes a bill that would provide grants to explore innovative unarmed responses to crisis calls. Oversight Commissioner Priscilla O'Chen says the county should embrace experimentation and continue to launch pilot projects that reimagine crisis response. We are asking law enforcement to do too much, and the tasks that we are assigning to them are inappropriate for the role. And if we want to make a change, then we have to do something different. 
If we don't, Ochen says, we'll continue to see families lose loved ones unnecessarily. Covering criminal justice, I'm Robert Garova. Believe it or not, when Walter O'Malley was making plans to build Dodger Stadium, one version, one early version of plans for Dodger Stadium made it possible for fans with field-level seats to almost drive right up to those seats. I mean, it's just one of many, many examples of how deeply ingrained cars are in L.A. in our culture. Coming up, we're going to hear how our car culture has now led to car architecture. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. I'm LAist reporter Caitlin Hernandez. The journalists of LAist work for you. Living in Southern California is complicated. The LAPD was just, they, they were merciless. My job is to explain it. Before the 1970s, there were a lot of public bathrooms and urinals in California to answer your basic questions and help you make sense of the big issues we're facing, discover community, and get the help you need. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places you get your podcasts. I'm e. Martinez. For better or worse, Los Angeles is a city that has been shaped by car culture. From massive highways to sprawl to automobiles have really been essential in determining the landscape of L.A. And as the 20th century progressed and cars became more and more vital to getting around town, car culture merged with architecture to create some of the city's most iconic structures. L.A.-based historical journalist Hadley Mears chronicled the intertwining histories of autos and architecture in a piece for L.A.ist this week. Hey, Hadley. Hey, how are you doing, eh? Good, good. Uh, so, okay, so when did cars really begin to shape the city's architecture we know today? Well, it's really interesting. It really began to shape the architecture in the 1920s. And that's when you see a lot of gas stations being built to look like houses, being built to look like homey, very traditional architecture that would really kind of blend in with the city and make people go, oh, okay, it's all right that this kind of fantastical, modern, industrial thing is in my intimate neighborhood. Yeah, this isn't a gas station. Don't anyone think we're a gas station. (laughs) We're just a normal home, just like any other home in the neighborhood. Uh, All right. Now, as you write, as you mentioned, the first examples of this were gas stations. Tell us a a little bit more about that, because that's fascinating. I I wish I could see these things. I wish I would have I was alive to like experience that. Well, amazingly, you can still see some examples of these even 1920s uh, kind of homey and 1930s gas stations. There's a great one in Brentwood that's still there that's kind of in a colonial revival style, which is not what we think of when we think of gas stations (laughs) (laughs) at all. And there's a lot of, of course, amazing examples of Streamline Modern, uh, car culture or car architecture buildings, and of course, Googie architecture buildings that are still scattered throughout the Los Angeles area and Southern California as a whole. So Googie, tell us, uh, walk us through that bit of, a, of that evolution. 
What's really fascinating is Googie is such a specifically kind of Southern California idea. LA from basically the 1920s are, if you really think about it, we become a place shaped by the car and shaped by kind of these long boulevards and long streets. And so Googie was built and designed to pop out at the motorist. So you're driving down La Brea, you're driving down Ventura, and you see this fantastical architecture with all of these strange angles and these bright colors and this very futuristic design. And it draws you in to get your car fixed or to get gas or to get some coffee. And so it's really amazing because it's just such a thing that really could have only grown out of kind of middle class almost what you think of as like San Fernando Valley, mid-century <laughs> culture. I can imagine someone thinking, I don't need gas. I don't need coffee <laughs> and I don't need my car fixed, but this place is just drawing me in. It's like a tractor beam. Exactly. It's a roadside attraction, right? That's why you had all these kind of gimmicky places too. Like there was one early uh, gas station that was an old airplane. So you just had all of these ways of people trying to lure you in. And of course, there's the famous Felix Chevrolet with the famous oh, yeah, Felix yeah. the cat, right? And I mean, that a cartoon cat selling cars, selling Chevys. Hey, it worked. It's worked for many, many decades now. My uncle in 1976 bought himself a red Monte Carlo at Felix Chevrolet. <laughs> and I insisted on going with him because I wanted to see the cat. I wanted to there see the cat. Go. Yeah, I'll That's never forget amazing. that. Yeah. So how would you say, Hadley, that car, you know, that the car has changed the way cities looked overall, especially here? Well, it's really contributed to urban sprawl, right? So, I mean, this city would have never been nearly as big, nearly as sprawling as it was without the ease of access to the car. It's also changed how we think about cityscapes. I mean, I think all the time, I do a lot of travel, uh, local travel for my job in LA, and I'm always thinking, okay, where's the nearest gas station? Where's the nearest car wash? My car gets dirty all the time. And it's become such a part of our life to think of these things when we're driving around the city. And another thing I really have really loved about learning about car architecture is how even like a car wash or a smog check center has been turned into a work of architectural importance and art. I mean, what a cool thing. I know there's a lot of downside to cars and we kind of now wish we didn't even need gas stations and props. We won't have them one day, but yeah. maybe we'll have some really cool, you know, um, electric plug in station that's amazingly designed uh, with a new architecture we can't even imagine to take its place. You know, Hadley, when I was uh, traveling with the Dodgers, I got uh, lucky enough to go to every single American city that had a Major League Baseball team. And wow. in all those cities, in all those cities, it always felt like, yes, the cars were stuffed into a place that wasn't really made for them. But I, there's no other city, at least that I remember, that was more built for the car than this one. Exactly. And, you know, from very early on, California had a really strong culture of going for long drives and automobile clubs. If you think of the um, Southern California Automobile Association building on Figueroa, it's this grand, beautiful building, and it's built in the 1920s 
already as this kind of temple to cars. And that's because they really took hold in California because especially in Los Angeles, think about it, we're all about the new, we're all yeah. about exploring and getting places and the car offered an opportunity for all of that. All right now in the 60s and 70s, the tide started to turn on the public perception of cars. Uh, they weren't seen as cool or futuristic as much. Uh, they were kind of more of a problem for LA Sprawl. <laughs> How is the architecture then starting to change around that time? It's really interesting. So you kind of have the height of Googie in the 1960s with some really amazing examples. And then, you know, in the 1970s, there's your first Earth Day. People start to realize all the damage and pollution that cars cause. And also what happens during that time is that, you know, more and more mom and pop, like my grandfather owned tons of gas stations in North Carolina. And then slowly all these like local owners start getting bought up by these giant corporations. So buildings become much more utilitarian, much more based on corporate branding, and sadly for us, a lot less fun. You know, earlier in the show, Hadley, I mentioned how uh, early plans for Dodger Stadium had it where if you had field level seats, the ones way down on the field at the bottom there, that you could drive up. Walter O'Malley already was tuned <laughs> in to the car culture that you could drive right up to your seat and then your car would be parked for you. I mean, can you imagine if Dodger Stadium were actually set up that way where you could just drive right up to your seat at a big baseball stadium? And that That's actually an example of how entrenched that was and maybe still is. Absolutely. And that's absolutely fantastic. I would love that in every aspect of my life. <laughs> and today you can still go to like the amazing Gilmore gas station, which yeah, is a beautiful yeah. streamlined modern is now a cool drive through Starbucks. So you can still do some of that drive-in uh, fun stuff today and get a little architecture in the mix. That's LA historian and LAist writer Hadley Mears. Her latest piece, uh, How Car Culture Shaped the Crazy Cool Architecture of Mid-Century LA. It can be found at LAist.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. Hadley, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, a heads up that next Thursday, May 27th at 5 p.m., I'm going to be hosting a live virtual discussion on youth homelessness in L.A. and how it affects the mental health of teens experiencing it. Uh, it's really sure to be a very powerful and informative event. Uh, it's free. It's free to anyone. So please join us. You can register at kpcc.org slash events. That's kpcc.org slash events. And if you missed any part of the show, just head on over to where you get your podcast. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. That's good for Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at two. Marketplace is next. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, JB Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.